Please be seated. This morning we begin a new sermon series in the book of Habakkuk. We're titling it, When Life Doesn't Make Sense. So I invite you to turn to Habakkuk. I probably would encourage you to cheat this week and look in the index. It's in the Minor Prophets towards the end of the uh, Old Testament, but uh, the book can go by so quickly I usually just cheat anyway. If you're looking at a pew Bible, uh, you're on page 785. If you brought your own Bible, you're on your own. I have no idea what page uh, it is. But uh, nevertheless, um, these, uh, these minor prophets can be, even if you know where, they, where to look, sometimes I think they hide. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 of the first chapter uh, of the book of Habakkuk. So as you're turning there, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear his word. Father, we come uh, this morning with great thanksgiving for the love that you have demonstrated for us in the person of Christ, and that Christ, as he has come to be our, our Redeemer, he has also come and is uh, the living Word. And so we pray, Lord, that the Word that is living, the Word that you have recorded for us as well, uh, would be a lamp to our feet and a light for our path, that you would guide us in the way that we should go, and reminding us that the way that we go is toward you and more and towards Christ's likeness. Bless us, we pray, in Christ. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. May the Lord give us understanding from his word this morning. Why? Why does the Lord allow that there are tyrannical dictators bent toward evil who are reigning over nations throughout the earth, oppressing the people that are under their authority, particularly women and children, and anyone who would dare have a view contrary, whether or not uh, it's political or religious? Why does God allow for the killing of babies in various ways throughout the nations? when there are so many that are godly and loving who would love to be able to be parents but are not able to either through infertility or involuntary singleness at least for this time why is the so few have so much and so many have so little that even children are starving and dying of thirst this morning as I come, as every morning, taking a gulp from my bottle of water, being more clean water that I had in one swig than thousands and thousands of children will get in a week or, in some cases, a lifetime. The fact that God allows these kinds of things is unnerving if we allow it to be, if we think about them. Because we then ask ourselves, does God care? Or if he cares, 
and these things exist is it that he can't do anything about them is it possible that sigmund freud was correct in thinking when he said that the whole idea of god is just our projection of some cosmic daddy in the sky and that we've created one to our liking and then we bow down and worship and submit ourselves to something of our own creation those kinds of questions are unnerving and make some people uncomfortable. And some people, no doubt, perhaps have some suspicion or maybe, maybe even a conviction that those kinds of questions are not just unnerving, but they're somehow inappropriate. But these are the kinds of questions that honest people have to wrestle with when they consider the world as we see it and the God as we proclaim him to be as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. This morning we've been introduced and for the next few weeks we'll be getting to know a man who not only thought that these kinds of questions were appropriate, but he was driven to reconcile the God that he knew and the world that he saw. The man's name is Habakkuk. Now it seems that a lot of people, are, or many people are unfamiliar with Habakkuk. They just don't seem to know him. A friend of mine, as he was preparing to preach a series in Habakkuk a few years ago, decided to be creative. And so he went out with a camera in the streets, kind of like you see on the late night TV shows that are going out and asking the, the man on the street kinds of questions. So he took his camera around his town and he asked the question of the different people, posed it to him and said, what does Habakkuk mean to you? And so he first went over to a 7-Eleven and quiet time uh, there in the store, he asked the person behind the counter, with the camera rolling, what does Habakkuk mean to you? And the young lady behind the counter said, I think it's one of those words spelled backwards, isn't it? Um, kind of like Majnik that we celebrate, you know, observed or our, our youth group went to, something that is uh, just turned, you know, turned backwards. He next went to an office building and he found a woman on a smoke break and he asked her, what does Habakkuk mean to you? And she said that she'd heard the word and she thought it was a Jewish holiday. And he went over to the skate park and uh, found a, a young man skateboarding and asked him, and he said that he thought that, it was, that Habakkuk was a horror film from the 70s or the 80s. My favorite uh, scene that I saw uh, that he had recorded was when he met up with a crotchety old guy or older guy, aging guy, that was um, coming out of Lowe's. And the guy, you could tell, was trying to brush him off. He didn't want anything to do with talking with somebody. He certainly didn't want to talk with somebody that was having a cam had a camera. And he asked a question, and he kind of was gruff and, you know, I guess was taught, raised well enough to be polite and, and asked, hey, what, what did you say? And he said, what does Habakkuk mean to you? And the guy, well, he continued to walk on, ignoring the question, just said, I, I don't want any. He thought he was a salesman trying to sell something. That he didn't want any Habakkuks. He already had one. Um, and... Um, <laughs> And then final scene that he had, he went to an older man who was sitting on a rocking chair, kind of just kicking back at the mall, waiting for his wife to finish shopping. And as he approached this older man and asked him, what does Habakkuk mean to you? And he said that he thought that it was the technical term for a disease of the lower back, which he said that he had. So it's Habakkuk. Um, And I guess these uh, ideas are not, shouldn't really be particularly surprising because so few people really know much about Habakkuk or even, even a lot of Bible students have not, that may be familiar with his name, 
maybe with his circumstance, but just not particularly familiar with Habakkuk himself. And I think that's a shame, or at least it's sad. Because while Habakkuk lived over 2,500 years ago, his story is as contemporary as anything that you're going to find in all of the scriptures. His circumstances caused him to face realities, to deal and respond and ask questions that are the same kinds of things that you and I are prompted to be asking. Now, here's what we do know about Habakkuk. Habakkuk was born during the reign of Josiah, the, the boy king. And he was born into a family of Levites, and so he was quite likely a priest. Scholars tell us that as they study Habakkuk, he also was a dabble in philosophy, particularly philosophies of religion. And so he was a fairly well-rounded guy. Called to be a prophet, he was uh, living at the last times or towards the end of the age of, of Judah as a, as a nation. And so he was a contemporary with Jeremiah, and if not with Zephaniah, they were very close. The, Zephaniah came shortly after, and so would have, they would have both lived uh, at the same time, even if they were not prophesying at the same time. And so we know a number of facts, and we also know that Habakkuk was different than the other prophets. And that while all the prophets that were called were called to, by God to speak to the people God's concerns and God's promises, Habakkuk is different than that Habakkuk is not speaking to the people, but Habakkuk, perhaps because he was also a priest, he's taking questions of people and going to God, and he's speaking to God on behalf of people. And see, while Habakkuk was born during the time of Josiah, which there was a tremendous spiritual renewal during that reign of that king, the word was uncovered, recovered, read. People were broken, repented, and believed. There was a celebration. There was an observation of, of, of worship. There was a, a conformity to the word and to the, to the law of God. And so it was the glory days. It was truly the good old days as Habakkuk was growing up. But even as some who have experienced good old days in your own lives, good old days don't last. And Josiah eventually died. In Habakkuk's adulthood, there was a new king, Jehoiakim, who was not a good king and couldn't care less about God's word. He really didn't care much about anything but himself, his own power, his own comfort, his own wealth, his own reputation. Jehoiakim not only ignored the word of God, but he wanted to demonstrate his power. And he thought one way of doing that would be to take from the people. And so he invoked a tax simply because he could. And he wanted people, he thought that people would respect him if he demonstrated that kind of power that would just take from them what was theirs. Rather than trusting God to be the protector, Jehoiakim began negotiating treaties with nations, including the nations that were actually enemies of Judah and enemies of God. And as he entered into those uh, treaties, the stability of the culture began to collapse even more. The people angered by the tax, frustrated by the ungodliness, unleashed to do whatever they pleased, violence began to increase. People would turn on one another. People rebelled against God, and ultimately they rebelled against the government itself. They rebelled against the king. Here Habakkuk, who grew up in the glory days when people were seeking after God and God was blessing his people, now as an adult, 
is seeing this kind of a culture. The culture is collapsing all around him and he's frustrated. And you get the idea that perhaps he spent days on end and maybe even weeks in fasting and praying and asking for the Lord to bring renewal, bring revival again, whatever it took. And yet God remained conspicuously silent. The culture around him continued to crumble. The good old days were getting further and further in the rearview mirror. And Habakkuk was heartbroken and in despair. And as we read in our text this morning, he finally goes to the Lord and says, How long, O Lord, are we going to have to put up with this? How long are you going to allow these things to happen? How long will you remain silent? It's the bitter heart cry of one who knows God and sees a world that is not walking with God, sees a world that is not what it is supposed to be, not even what it once was. Now, the question that we have is, what are the practical lessons that we can learn from Habakkuk, and particularly from Habakkuk's cry that we see here in verses 2 through 4? And there are two this morning that I think that are important for us. They're simple, but they are profound. The first one is this, is that we need to realize that when God seems silent, it is natural to question. That's what Habakkuk is doing here. How long? Why? Will you not save? Why, aren't you, why are you allowing me to see this iniquity? And I think if I was going to put in an even simpler form, the lesson that we get from Habakkuk here, not just that it's normal and, and natural for us to question, but I think Habakkuk is demonstrating a concept that is, permeates all of the scripture that we need to learn and we need to conform ourselves to, and that is simply be real. Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. There's no need for us to be playing games with God as if he's not aware that we are struggling emotionally or, uh, or struggling intellectually or, or in some way struggling because we have a difficulty understanding the things that are going on around us, why things are the way that they are, why as Habakkuk's situation, that which was evil was now being called good and that which is good was being declared evil. Be real about what you see and how you're relating to God. It's not as if God does not know you better than you know yourself. In fact, some of these times draw us out of ourselves. And when we have that incongruity, we have an opportunity to ask, am I real? Or have I painted on a pious face because that's what religious people are supposed to do? Are you real? Or do you think somehow by not asking questions or showing your frustration that you're protecting God's reputation or protecting Christ's church. What we see from Habakkuk here is that he was very real. He was asking questions. He was expressing his heart. And we need to understand that it's not necessarily unspiritual for you to have doubts and to ask questions of God during the time when you see things that just don't seem to be the way that they're supposed to be. Things are inconsistent. That God seems to be silent. There's an author and psychologist, Paul Tournier, once said, where there is no longer any opportunity for doubt, there is no longer any opportunity for faith either. And what he means by that is faith is the evidence of things that are unseen. 
If there is no opportunity for doubt, that means that you know everything that is going on, you understand all, and there's no need for faith, trusting God, because you have it all under control. But wherever there is opportunity for doubt, there is also opportunity for faith. We come to a fork in the road. Some of you who remember the Hall of Fame baseball player Yogi Berra, Yogi once said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. Think about that for a moment, some of you. And I think that there's a sense in which Christians, we tend to do that. As church people, we come to the fork in the road and we take it. We have questions on one fork, but then we have the way that we act in another. And those two things get further and further apart. For whatever reason, we have divided and double minds. As if somehow we're going to offend God. Somehow something bad is going to happen if we were to dare to voice our questions, our frustrations. God is saying to us through Habakkuk, as he's drawing Habakkuk, and he raised Habakkuk up and recorded Habakkuk's lamentation, to just remind us that we need to be honest about our doubts and questions. Far more concerning to me are than the people who are asking questions and who have doubts and are seeking to get answers to their questions, to resolve their doubts, are the people who never have any question and never have any doubts, because they already have all the answers. They're pat simple answers and they've never struggled to reconcile life with God's character. They've never struggled to try to put these things together and they've never felt the weight of the seeming incongruity at times. They come in different personalities. They seem to have God all figured out and they come into your life. You have the pseudo-theologians. They're the ones that when you are in the midst of a difficult time, they ask you, well, what did you do wrong? Obviously, if you're suffering, it must be your fault. You must have done something wrong. Now, it's not entirely wrong of a question to be asking at some point if, if there's something we've done. Because a lot of the difficulties we have in our lives, we bring upon ourselves because we either have sinned or we are not consciously seeking to be conformity with God's will. God's will is the way things work. And if we put ourselves in God's will, anything use the way it's designed to work is usually going to be a lot better off than trying to use it some other way. But that's not a universal truth. Not all suffering comes because of something that we have done or because we are sin. We live in a broken world. And these pseudo-theologians come and speak to us and I guess they think they're trying to help when they continually not so much ask the question once but persist in the whole idea it must be something you've done. Job had friends like that. They came and they kept on speaking to him and saying, look, it's got to be something. God is not unjust. So you would not be suffering if there wasn't something there. God's just trying to purge you of something. Singer, songwriter, theologian Michael Card, as he was writing a suite about, uh, from Job's perspective, was responding to his friends as musing. And as he's, in through Michael Card's words, as Job would have been thinking and saying, their words and their doctrines all sound so true. The only thing, Lord, is that they're all wrong about you. See, not all suffering comes because of our sin. And so somebody who tries to reduce everything to, what did you do? This is why your world is in a mess. Is not offering the help. Is not even offering full truth. We don't only have the 
pseudo-theologians, but we have those that I call the exorcists. All doubts must come from the devil, so we're going to cast those things out. We're going to pray them out. If you have any doubts, any questions, it must be from the devil. And so they give you no room to ask questions, to express your doubts, somehow is playing right into the design of the enemy. But Habakkuk is a clear demonstration that that's not the case. Then we have those who are, to me, the most irritating. They're those who call the cheerleaders. They always have to be happy and peppy no matter what's going on. And if you're in the midst of a crisis in your life that you're trying to resolve, no matter where you are, you may either, you may be dealing with it and, and just still in your funk. You may just be on the beginning and, and it still is overwhelming you, but they can't have any unpleasantness in their life. And so they'll send you little cheery cards and emails. Bugs me. And they will tell you happy, peppy things and their truth and what they say, but it's irrelevant. They don't even take, they don't take seriously the weight of whatever it is that you're wrestling with because they just can't comprehend and they're unwilling to consider that this world sometimes is heavy. And I think related to the cheerleaders, but not necessarily as peppy, you have the positive thinkers. When you express whatever frustration or difficulty that you're facing, they'll tell you, don't say that. See, if you speak it, it's going to happen. So you need to say only positive things. Speak it. Speak it into existence. Declare your victory over whatever problem you've got, and then it'll happen. I've never asked any of them if they've ever bought a lottery ticket and decided to speak into existence to pay for their kids' college tuition and their retirement, and if so... Uh, I'll buy one and they can speak it into existence for me. That's, that's fine. As if we have the power of God that by our very breath we can make come to fruition. God alone has that kind of power. Now, there is truth and there are some people who like to wallow in their misery. And they're not actually asking questions. They're not seeking resolution. And there is benefit of being reminded of the promises of God that we're told that we should be speaking to ourselves. But that only sometimes serves to emphasize the difference between what is to come or should be and what is for us. But we have people that are all around us who offer us tidbits of truth, but not the fullness of truth. There's an element of helpful advice, but they're basically offering you good medicine at the wrong time for the wrong ailment, which actually can lead to death. It's not surprising the German theologian Helmut uh, Thielke was asked one time, what does he see as the greatest efficiency of American Christianity? And he said that they have an inadequate view of suffering. See, we just have this idea in our culture and that permeates our churches and our culture that somehow life should be simple, that if you do good, things should go well for you. We just, we just rid the complexity that life is full of and that we see through all of the pages of the scripture. And Habakkuk just brings a highlight to it and saying, life is sometimes complex and we don't understand. And God, even in those times, seems silent. And what Habakkuk reminds us is it's appropriate even as it's natural, to ask God questions. The second thing that we see is this, I think, at least it stems out to me, is in times when God seems silent, we need to draw near to God. 
in a difficult time in my own life, who was a wise older brother in Christ. Some of you have met him, Cal Fretz, worshiped with here. And Cal said, you know, when these kinds of things come into your life, they will either drive you from the Lord or drive you to the Lord. And with an intensity that's kind of surprising for Cal, if you know him and if you've met him, because he's such a gentle man. It wasn't an overt, but it was a power, even through his gentleness. And he says, you let this drive you to the Lord. That's exactly what we see Habakkuk dealing with here or doing here in this particular text. He has serious questions. God seems incredibly distant or at least incredibly inactive, but the circumstances that Habakkuk finds himself in, he's allowing that to drive him to the Lord. Now, how do we know that? I mean, it's not in anything specifically that he says. There is no verse in here that says, you know, when under difficulty, then, you know, pray three times daily and call a doctor as needed. It's, it's not, he doesn't, it's not in a particular verse, but it is in the whole of his action that when he was feeling that God was distant and God was inactive and the world was not the way that it was to be, what's his response is he goes to God. He draws near to God. He prays to God. And his prayer in this particular case is one of lamentation, one of complaint, one almost in a sense of accusing God, except he doesn't do that. Because he knows God's good, he knows God's sovereign, he knows God's in control, so therefore, because of all that he knows, it just makes it all the more perplexing why that culture, God's people, were in the circumstance that he was having to experience. So Habakkuk's pattern, at least as it's recorded here, when God seemed to be silent, was not to sit and just simply wait and hope that something would happen someday, he, knowing the promise of God that he would be there for him, he draws near to God. Now, as we read through this letter, you'll realize that God speaks. And God does tell Habakkuk that he is in control. God has a plan. Uh, Habakkuk is not particularly thrilled with God's plan, as we will see next week. And that raises further objections and questions that in, in his mind. But God does speak and he does remind him that, that he is always at work. God is always working things out according to his purpose and for the good of his people. Now, a number of Christians are baffled by and are puzzled by passages like this in the scripture because we have been infected with that positive thinking message or the, the um, prosperity uh, idea that just has infected Christianity particularly in America, elsewhere in the West, it's spreading some places, but it's rejected in a lot of places in the world, and it's good that it's rejected because it's wrong. I have stronger thoughts were going through my head, but I will refrain from doing that for the sake of keeping my job. Um, anyway. But Habakkuk reminds us that questions flow from persistent silence from God. And that we can still draw near to him. When God speaks, he reminds Habakkuk, and we'll see this over and over again, that it's not only bad people that experience difficulties in life, but all people experience difficulties in life. It doesn't mean God is not there and God is not in control. 
The fact that God seems strangely silent does not mean that God is not at work because it's important that we recognize as we find through Habakkuk, it's at times, sometimes when God is, seems most silent, he is actually doing the most significant things to carry out his plan that actually gives us the fulfillment that he's promised and that we long for. The scriptures, particularly, think of Romans 8, tells us and points us to the death and the resurrection of Christ whenever we have issues of doubt as a promise that God will never forsake us. And is also a reminder that God is actually accomplishing what he has promised, even when he doesn't seem to be doing anything. Because there was a time when one was forsaken. Christ Jesus, who became like us, and as he is on the cross, he cries out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God had forsaken him. As he was bearing upon himself not only all of our sin, but all of the forsakenness that we deserve. Because of all of my turning my back on God, the indifference, the lack of glorying, glorifying his name and glorying in his name, that I, God should have been done with me long ago. And yet, God poured that on Christ. And he did forsake him. And he died and rose again that we would never be forsaken. All the forsakenness that we fear that God is dishing out to us was already poured out on him. And yet, we need to be reminded that in the very act of forsaking Christ, he was accomplishing the redemption that we need and that we put our hope in. He was fulfilling the very purpose and the very promise that he has issued from the time that the people were cast out of the garden. This is the way that God responds. He may not have been speaking at the time, but he continued to be working in order to call a people to himself to secure them, to pay for that. And so we know certain facts, and we know and need to be reminded and remind ourselves that no matter what is happening in our world, and you don't have to be faced with the world crisis kinds of questions that just kind of weigh you down. It's appropriate. We ask questions even when they're less personal. I mean, simple, I mean, they're more personal and less world-shaking. You know, like, well, why did that guy get the promotion when he's a moron? I mean, that's, I mean, it should have been my job. Or why did that guy choose that girl when she has nothing to offer? See, these are personal questions with where we live, and God is concerned with every detail, but those are the kinds of things that sometimes they shake our worlds more immediately than a governmental collapse. And it's appropriate for us to ask questions at those times too. God, where are you? And God may seem silent, but the promise of the cross is that while God may not be telling you what he's doing, he is still at work, and the cross is where he points us to, to remind us that even when he's silent, he is at work, he is redeeming, he is protecting, he is working out his plan. I wish I could put Habakkuk into a just neat, simple formula, but I'm not able to do that, and part of the reason I'm not able to do that is because life is not in a neat, cheery formula. But as Habakkuk experienced, so I want you to experience whatever is you're facing, and focus here is more on difficult times. Don't pretend. Be real. 
to seek God. Because Christ was forsaken, you know you won't be. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for the word you've given, that you've blessed us in Christ, and that you understand our concerns, our desires, our delights, our fears. You understand us better than we understand ourselves because you're the one who's created us. And I pray for us as a people who are gathered here, for those who are experiencing crisis in their own lives that just don't seem to be resolved. Lord, may they turn to you, and I pray that you would speak to them. But even in your silence as they wait, I pray that you would enable them to trust that you are working these things out. For those that are feeling the weight of the world and the concern of the changes within our culture. Lord, may we realize that you are in control of all things. That while the world may conspire, we cling to the hope of the promise that you have already put your king on your holy hill. And we belong to him. Bless us with peace when there seems no reason for peace. Strengthen us in faith even when you seem silent. Through the strength that you grant us by your Spirit, we might not even only experience the peace, but we may be those who can spread the peace to others when they feel forsaken. I pray in Christ. Amen.